everyone. This is the Postmodern Realities Podcast. I'm Melanie Cogdell, Managing Editor at the Christian Research Journal, and this is a bonus encore presentation of a 2022 episode, which was number 283, and we covered the film Everything Everywhere All at Once when it was just released, and instead of having you scroll back so many episodes, we just decided to give you this bonus encore presentation. Plus, some of you might be new listeners and might have missed it. And the reason why is on Sunday, March 12th, 2023, Everything Everywhere All at Once won seven Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Supporting Actor. So it won a lot of major categories, and we really wanted to bring it to you again because we have some thoughtful insights for the Christian apologist, and a lot of people will be seeing this film, and so this episode will equip you to talk about it with other people. Now, just as a a word that it is spoiler-filled, as we note, and also it is rated R for language, and there is no nudity, but there is some suggestion of sexuality. So just to let you know, it is brief, but it is in there. There's a lot of like really big fight scenes, but there is a lot of profane language. So that's why it's rated R, and here's the encore presentation of the episode. Thank you for tuning in to the Postmodern Realities Podcast, brought to you by the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. I'm Melanie Cogdill, Managing Editor of the Christian Research Journal. It's April 2022, and this is Episode 283, which is a spoiler-filled conversation about the film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Today's guest is Cole Burgett, who is a recent seminary graduate. He is also a graduate of the Moody Bible Institute and an author for the website Christ in Pop Culture. Cole has written an online exclusive film review for the Christian Research Journal, and you can read his web exclusive review at our website equip.org if you are a subscriber to our journal. If you do not subscribe and would like to read this online exclusive film review, please go to our website at equip.org to subscribe. Cole, it's good to have you on again. Always good to be here. Thank you. Well, this is a movie that kind of defies expectation or explanation, what I'd like to say. And this particular film, now I want to say at the outset, as I mentioned, it's going to be pretty spoiler filled. Not that that will make any sense unless you actually see the film. It might be kind of not possible to completely spoil it, but Everything Everywhere All at Once really from out of the gate is just such a, it, it kind of speaks to the ethos, but it's also kind of a point in time for nerds of just real weirdness. So it is now one of the highest, I know the last time you were on, we were saying the Batman was the highest Rotten Tomatoes scoring, but at this juncture when we're recording it, it's a 97% fresh tomatoes with almost 200 reviews, not to mention that it is very popular with the actual audience and their audience score is 94%. So it's kind of 
not in one way it was something that I expected in another way it wasn't it it seemed more like a lot of vignettes trying to have a bigger story underneath it and it's not a spoiler to say which I think you can see from the trailer that this particular film is about the multiverse so first of all can you give us a general overview of the film and its premise and its characters and one of the actors in it Michelle Yeoh is a very, very popular actress. She's very well liked. She made her major splash, of course, in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon all those years ago. But more recently, she was in Crazy Rich Asians as the mom of one of the characters. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about this film? So I've seen a lot of headlines that suggest the movie is extremely complicated or something like that. But uh, I, I do want to say that the basic premise of the film is actually pretty familiar and I would say fairly easy to follow if you at least know the, the genre conventions it's playing with. So in, in the world of the film, there are multiple universes that sort of exist all in parallel with one another. And all of them are manifestations of choices not made. So uh, by way of example, if you're married, there's another universe out there with another you who didn't marry or who married a different person. And all of these universes, uh, collectively known as the multiverse, are under threat from this mysterious individual who basically has the power to destroy all of them. And this small group of characters who have become uh, aware of all these other universes, have found a way to hop through the universes uh, by basically transferring their minds into the bodies of the versions of themselves present in the different universes, all in search of this one particular character who can stop this multiverse from being destroyed. Now, I know that might sound slightly overwhelming in places, but the truth is uh, this kind of storytelling has been a mainstay in science fiction for at least the la half of uh, the last century. Uh, in fact, if anyone remembers seeing that early aught science fiction film starring Jet Li called The One, the premise is actually quite similar uh, in some respects. So fans of the genre, I think, will find much of the setup, at least, to be pretty familiar and easy to follow. Now, where things take a turn from the traditional uh, science fiction trope is in its characters. The main character here, which in most other versions of this story would be a young, heroic male or female, is here a middle-aged woman played by the dame of action movie heroines herself, Michelle Yeoh. And I'm glad you, you mentioned her. I have to digress here for just a minute and say that this woman really, really is a wonderful actress. I don't think I have ever seen her in a role that I just didn't care for. Uh, she is absolutely and always thrilling to watch. She more or less single-handedly redefined the traditional Bond girl in the James Bond uh, movie Tomorrow Never Dies. And she was absolutely electrifying in the Academy Award winning Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which is a movie that everybody should see at some point in their lives just because of how it introduced the wuxia genre, uh, film genre, to Western audiences. So this is your protagonist in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And she's been getting a lot of critical acclaim for her performance here, and, and it really is deserved. She's great. And her character in the film is named Evelyn. And Evelyn is this uh, stressed Chinese-American woman 
who runs a felling laundromat with her husband, Waymond, and their lesbian daughter, Joy. Uh, her father also lives with them, and they are currently being audited by the IRS, mainly represented uh, by an agent played by Jamie Lee Curtis. And uh, the family is in the midst of dysfunction with Wayman trying to work up the courage to serve Evelyn divorce papers and Evelyn trying to keep Joy's same-sex relationship with another girl a secret from her father. Um, now, by way of spoilers, okay, uh, Evelyn's daughter Joy actually turns out to be the mysterious figure trying to destroy the multiverse. Uh, and another version of uh, Wayman comes to believe that this version of Evelyn who runs the laundromat is the one who can stop joy from basically wiping everything from existence. And uh, as wild and overblown and zany as that is, that's pretty much the setup and overview of this film. So very much a, a classic sci-fi action movie setup, but just done very differently from what we're used to. So, you know, right now we're kind of at this point in pop culture where you briefly mentioned it, the multiverse. And this concept is kind of going throughout various series and franchises, not just particularly in this film that is, you know, we're talking about here, everything, everywhere. We'll just call it everything, everywhere. It's kind of a big mouthful of a, of a title. But, you know, we see it also in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, specifically in Doctor Strange. If anyone's watching trailers before this particular film, they probably saw that. And there's also kind of a multiverse theme in the DC universe too, as well. So there's these, this particular genre that's, that's uh, happening. And I, I would say probably we could say that's true about Star Trek too, which I know that you enjoy that particular franchise. And um, I would say also it's happening in popular fiction. In fact, a book that I read several years ago that I heard about, um, I really, really enjoyed. It's called Dark Matter by Blake Crouch. And that is definitely about the multiverse. And as a matter of fact, I found out that it's going to be a series on Apple TV. And so that particular book was written by, I think, a TV writer. He wrote this novel and it definitely reads like you're watching a television series or, or, or a movie. So this kind of fascination with the multiverse is kind of something that people are interested in right now. And why do you think that is? I mean, why do you think it's has this renaissance in so many of our most popular sci-fi franchises. Yeah, well, I will say you've you've hit the nail on the head. Um, those are those are all your major uh, franchises, I guess, if that's the word we use now. Uh, all the major series that that play with this. Star Trek has been doing it for a long time. It's been in the comic books uh, a lot. So, I, I think this is something that has entered the popular imagination more recently. And uh, kind of like you've pointed out, I, I think it's due in part to the emergence of the comic book subgenre as the dominant pop culture fascination for the moment. Uh, comic book companies have been playing with parallel universes and whatnot for a long time now, but they didn't really invent the concept. Uh, the, the parallel universe idea has been a staple of the science fiction genre since the, uh, the 60s, thanks largely to the work of British fantasy writer Michael Moorcock. Now, if, if you enjoy reading science fiction and fantasy, and Michael Moorcock is a name unfamiliar to you, then I promise you that you're in for a real treat. Before George R.R. R. Martin and Game of Thrones, before uh, Andrzej Sapkowski and The Witcher, you had Michael Moorcock and his character Elric of Melnibonet. And what the character of Elric Moorcock was 
reinventing and deconstructing the sword and sorcery genre in the early 1960s. I've always preferred Elric to many of the newer fantasy series like The Witcher or Game of Thrones, and I'm sure, I'm sure that one day someone is going to come along and adapt Elric to screen, and it's going to be a hit, and uh, Michael Moorcock will undergo his renaissance. Mark my words on that. Anyway, so he really introduced the parallel universe idea to the world of fiction, and it has since become a genre mainstay. Star Trek was telling parallel universe stories for a while. He really introduced the parallel universe idea to the world of fiction, and it has since become a genre mainstay. Star Trek has been doing it. Comic books have been doing it. Uh, and now, as a result, the, the, the adaptations are, are doing it. And I, I begin here with this concept as it relates to science fiction, because that's really where it belongs. The reason the idea of a multiverse, of a cosmos with a bunch of parallel universes all in existence simultaneous to one another, that's not what your academics are going to call an acceptable scientific theory. It really is much more the product of fiction writers and imagineers than hard science. Now, that's not to say that it hasn't been the subject of intense scientific debate, because it has. And it really isn't a, a new concept just in, in this movie or in Doctor Strange or in a lot of what DC is now doing. I mean, there have been, and it's not even a new concept in the scientific community. I mean, there have been speculations of things like parallel universes found in writings that date as far back as ancient Greece. And it's all over a lot of the weirder writings in the Middle Ages. But the modern conception of the idea really comes about due in no small part to the rising interest in quantum mechanics. When you begin to study what is known as string theory in quantum physics or something known as M-theory, you'll begin flirting with ideas that lend themselves to parallel universes. But it's all theoretical, and you'll find that not even the researchers who think about and write about these things can can really even agree on what they're talking about, which is nothing new. Uh, you, you'll see popular scientists like Brian Greene engage in the conversation, but by and large, this stuff is still relegated to the realm of science fiction. But what tends to happen as these things garner a foothold in the popular imagination is that the average moviegoer or the average reader sort of begins to assume that a lot of this stuff is just accepted science, that like most scientists believe in the multiverse or something. And that simply isn't true. Uh, this stuff is all very theoretical, which is just a very fancy term meaning guesswork. Everybody's guessing here. Maybe some educated guesses, but at the end of the day, it's all speculation. It's really your sci-fi writers who are more responsible for working this stuff into the pop culture lexicon than anybody else. We are running a brand new giveaway for our listeners, and this giveaway ends June 30th, 2022. And this giveaway is, of course, for a free subscription to the Christian Research Journal anywhere in the world. And in addition, if you live in the United States, if you win this giveaway, you will get these additional swag bonuses of four different books. The first one is called Doubts About Darwin. The second and third one are actual hardcover books of the best of the Christian Research Journal. One is called What is Truth? The other one is called Whose Ethics, Whose Morals? And just kind of classic apologetics articles from our archives. And then the final one is called 
cultural apologetics, Renewing the Christian Voice, Conscience and Imagination in a Disenchanted World by Paul Gould. And of course, as you know, in the Postmodern Realities podcast, we do cover a bunch of cultural apologetics. So that will be a great equipping book. And so here's how you enter. In order to enter, you just go on to Apple Podcasts. I know it takes a moment to just sign in there, but you give us a written review. It can be really short, just one sentence, one or two sentences, just a few words about why you like to listen to this podcast. And that enters you in because we'll do a drawing from all of the names or handles that are on there and anyone that's been entering from the beginning of this contest through June 30th will receive one entry and we will spin the wheel and someone will win this prize. So please do go on there because as you do so and you write us a review, it's a way in which you can help other people who have the similar interest of you in cultural apologetics and apologetics to find this podcast. Now, of course, we're always grateful for the other ways you help us, which is just get the word out there. Simply tell a friend about this podcast or share one of your your favorite episodes on your social media accounts or email it to a friend or however you want to get it out there. We just really appreciate your partnership with us. The other thing is, of course, we'd love for you to subscribe to our journal. We are continuing to try to grow our subscription base. And what you get for your subscription is all the print issues directly to your door, plus all the online exclusives that we have on our website that you hear about in these podcast episodes. So give us a subscription would be great. Also as a gift to a friend, if you already subscribe, or if a subscription is not in your budget right now, please, we would ask that you consider giving us a tip. I mean, $3 or $5 giving up one of your favorite coffees for the week at your favorite coffee shop and giving us a tip to help us bring you this content. So thank you. You know, we were just talking about, you were mentioning that this is kind of the idea of the multiverse is really theoretical science. And I do want to mention to our listeners, because whenever you talk about sci-fi, you know, people wonder, should their faith, is there's a Christian faith on rocky ground? And a few years ago, we published an article called, Would Extraterrestrial Intelligent Life Spell Doom for Christianity? So I will just point everyone to our website and they can read that particular article by Guillermo Gonzalez. But you know, how do you think Christians should approach a concept like this, you know, besides the fact that it's a very helpful narrative device in fiction or any kind of storytelling on film and television? It's just something that opens up a lot of narrative possibilities. But you mentioned that it's theoretical science when it comes to the multiverse. But is there a world in which faith and something like a multiverse could meet on neutral terms? In other words, are these things at odds with one another? And should Christians be concerned that, wow, if there was a multiverse, suddenly my faith is is no longer valid? This is an interesting question. Um, it's interesting because for many, many Christians, the word uh, science sends them running, screaming back into the dark ages. And it's it's not that there's not good reason for that. The 20th century was the century of progress where science and enlightenment were supposed to save the, you know, the entire human race. And it's also the century that gave us Stalin, Hitler, Mao, and Mussolini and claimed the lives of hundreds of millions across multiple world wars. And we're not even you know, talking yet about genocide to the Holocaust. So the Enlightenment project failed spectacularly. 
And if anything, progress has highlighted the dark side of human nature. And I think we have to keep that at the forefront of our thoughts when we begin to venture into discussions of theoretical science. Now, having said that, I also want to point out that quantum physics is something I became interested in during my time as an undergraduate student at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. I began to see a lot of corollaries between what quantum mechanics was interested in developing and a lot of the lofty assertions that the Bible makes about the nature of reality and the way things are. And as I've said to many professors, I've had these long and drawn-out conversations with over this, this particular topic. If even half of some of the more wild assertions that quantum physics makes, like entanglement, for example, are true, then the thinking Christian or the Christian who is interested in understanding reality from a truly godlike perspective suddenly has a fighting chance. And I'll give you an example of how this works out. When the scriptures describe Jesus returning to the Father after his resurrection, using the language of ascension, the image that most readily comes to mind is him uh, floating up into the clouds and just sort of, you know, evaporating, disappearing. So where did he go? Well, folks, we've went up through the clouds, and I've yet to see any reports from pilots saying they've seen Jesus hanging around up there. We've gone into the black depths of space, and guess who we haven't found? So as, as a Christian, you're going to have to understand what the Bible is talking about a bit differently than just, oh, heaven is up there, wherever there is. It seems to me that, that what we're looking at when we read passages like that in the Bible is something much closer to what quantum physics will call dimensions. And I don't mean this in a parallel universe sense, but in the true sense of higher dimensions within which ours sit. The, uh, for a popular uh, reading of this, check out Chris Nolan's movie Interstellar. It actually does quite a, a good job of explaining the concepts, uh, the concept of dimensions as it relates to quantum physics. Anyway, I think what we see when we read the Bible is something very similar to this, especially when you get to the book of Revelation. Now, I'm, I'm a comfortable dispensationalist. I know that you know, most people listening probably aren't, and they've just lost a ton of respect for me. It's okay. I don't care. I'm used to it. Uh, we can all get along swimmingly, and I bet you will all find out the truth sooner or later. But my point in saying that is this. When I look at certain re- uh, passages in Revelation, what I tend to see is an inbreaking of dimensions. The apocalyptic vision of Scripture is one in which the folds of reality are peeled back, and this interdimensional bleeding begins to happen with kingdoms being described as appearing very much as Christ is described to appear and disappear. And this, I mean, it's weird stuff. It really is weird stuff. But anybody who knows anything about quantum physics knows that it delves into this weird stuff. And I really, really do think that quantum mechanics is something Christians should not dismiss out of hand. In fact, in the near future, it might be one of our most important areas of interest in research. Now, I say all of that to say, can a Christian readily accept the premise of parallel universes? Eh, I shrug and say, maybe. I know some who do. I know some who don't. Uh, there are some things we have to consider about our present reality, the condition of sin, how it enters, whether or not it's a constant, whether uh, that necessitates another Christ-like figure or just a Christ figure 
on a parallel earth? All of those questions have to be entertained. Uh, these are ideas we have to enflesh and sort out for ourselves before we can comfortably say yes or no to the question of a multiverse. But I will tell you this, and I do mean it very seriously. If you are a professing Christian who takes at face value the cosmology of the Bible, then at the very least you are accepting the premise uh, that there are, in a sense, higher dimensions which interact with ours in very profound and important ways. So personally, I don't put too much stock in the parallel universe idea, uh, but I absolutely think there is something to the dimensional theories of quantum physics, and those should be paid attention to, uh, especially as a, as a Christian. So that's my uh, slight answer, not really an answer <laughs> to that particular, uh, that particular question. I do want to note after Cole's answer that anyone who is a longtime listener to this podcast or subscriber to the Christian Research Journal, of course, if you have been reading books by our president, Hank Hanegraaff, or listening to the Bible Answer Man show, know that we are very critical of dispensationalism in general and in particular its view of eschatology. Now, I will say that all of us even when we don't agree on that hermeneutic for our eschatology and have different ones, we all agree, as Cole noted, that we are looking at understanding that there are two realities that we have currently, and that is one that we are living in this world right now, and that there's also a spiritual and eternal reality that is very real. So we do agree there. It seems to be that there's this maybe theme, a messianic image theme that runs throughout this movie with particular Michelle Yeoh's character. She's the main character, Evelyn, the mom. She's kind of the matriarch of the family. So can you talk about how you think that the film contextualizes this messianic image of Evelyn with its, within its own universe? So as, uh, as we mentioned, Evelyn is presented in the context of uh, the film's narrative as this potential savior of uh, the multiverse, the only one capable of stopping a very powerful version of joy from wiping out pretty much everything in existence. But the reason this particular Evelyn is the one, so to speak, is because of all the Evelyns across all the infinite multiverses, our Evelyn represents the greatest failure. She has, for all intents and purposes, done nothing with her life. Her simple laundromat business is failing. Her family is in shambles. And she is too consumed with trying to keep her own head above water to notice any of it. Things are bad for her, and they're only getting worse. But what this means, then, in the context of the multiverse, is that this Evelyn has so, so much untapped potential to do things right. Because everything has gone wrong, she has the greatest potential to get the most important things right. And it's an interesting angle by which the writers choose to approach the tried and true chosen one mythic idea. It is, it is very much the opposite of the Star Wars approach, say, of the young farm boy or young scavenger archetype. It's just such a different take on the archetype making the character a middle-aged woman marked by a lifetime of failure. It's actually pretty reminiscent of how Johnson approached the character of Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi, 
but because Evelyn as a character doesn't bring all of the iconography and cultural baggage with her, it comes across as far less uh, controversial of a move, but it is pretty subversive in its own right. So Evelyn's character arc in the movie is essentially her coming to recognize her own untapped potential and having to face the reality that in many respects, she might have been a much happier person living a more glamorous life if she hadn't, for example, married Wayman. That's actually a, a huge plot point in the film. But more than this, and, and I, I will absolutely give the film credit for this, the movie actually has Evelyn coming to terms with the fact that in this universe, she can't change what she's got. Now, a lesser film would have her leave her family, would have her go on this grand universe-hopping adventure uh, where she lives all of these other remarkable and highfalutin lives, but everything everywhere all at once actually has her realize that she can't run from the life she's built here with all of its problems. And even though I would say that the film operates under a pretty nihilistic assumption which is that everything is chaotic and there's no ultimate meaning to life or the universe or whatever, and meaning has to be assigned. It has to be given based on what one connects with emotionally. I still give it credit for giving Evelyn the strength of personality and conviction to stand by her family and to actually reconcile with them. I mean, the whole final third of the movie, it, it actually is a fairly long film. It's like two and a half hours. Is that the runtime? It's over two hours. I think it's like 210 or 215, something. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't expect it to run that long. I kind of, I was kind of checking my watch there towards the end, but the whole final third of the movie is her making amends with her husband, her father, the IRS agent even, and finally her daughter to ultimately save the multiverse. And it just goes uh, to show you that the movie is far more interested in its characters than, than the plot itself. Evelyn essentially has to find meaning in the more mundane aspects of life. Yes, in this reality, she runs a laundromat with her goofy but kind-hearted husband, who plays a very key role in the narrative, actually. I really like how the film handled his character and how she had to sort of come around to his perspective. But she lives this life with this you know goofy but kind-hearted husband, and her really eccentric father and her lesbian daughter. However, she comes to realize that at least she's living this less than glamorous existence with people whom she loves very deeply and who love her as well. And that, uh, that makes the mundane grind of day-to-day -day existence, uh, like dealing with the weird customers at the laundromat, worth it. And uh, it, it can be a pretty profound statement to make, and I, I give the film no small amount of credit for it. I think it's really interesting to me that the film was very much, uh, you know, I, I expected, I think, because it had that sci-fi vibe to it, that it was going to take you into all these different multiverses and show you these, you know, these particular adventures that Evelyn would have. But that's really not what this film is about. I mean, it really shows you that she's grappling with the everyday challenges that people go through, including, you know, as it opens up that she, it seems like her daughter must be in college years or somewhere around that in her early twenties around there. And so she's been married for several decades and it's really interesting. She, the movie posits that maybe it wouldn't be better to do other things that people think would be better 
in one of the particular multiverses she's in, she's actually a film star. And that's one of the ones in which there's just a little bit more of a slower beat where she's talking to her husband, who is not her husband in this multiverse. And he said, you know, I, I would have been happy if we had gotten married and we were just running a laundromat or doing taxes, which is really funny because most people would think, well, my life would be so much better if I wasn't having the mundane life that I have with no meaning. It would be better if I was a movie star or something glamorous. So I thought that was kind of interesting that the film did that. And speaking of the meaning that you talked about, one of the um, reviews that I saw was from The Atlantic has this new newsletter that is kind of considers the meaning of life in pop culture that has been um, started by a guy who had a religious background. He grew up Seventh-day Adventist, so he, I guess, identified as a cultural Christian. Um, And now he rejects all of that. And so he says this in his review. I thought it was interesting. I that now as somebody who does, is not a person of faith, he says this quote, I don't have an answer for coping with the meaninglessness of life, but everything everywhere all at once does. And the movie is a masterpiece, but under its service, everything everywhere asks just a single question. How do you cope when you learn your own worthlessness? End quote. So he also asked this question in the um, particular review, you know, with, if you don't believe in God and the framework that, you know, a Christian worldview comes with? How do you determine your own value, your own worth? And so I wonder, He, the, you know, the review thought it was, the Atlantic Review thought it was um, a masterpiece, but do you feel like this film does answer that question and point to the fact that you can have a, a meaningful life in the midst of, you know, doing laundry and taxes, basically? Sure. I agree with you that it, it really tackles the the question in some pretty interesting ways, and it actually makes some pretty interesting uh, uh, assertions. What interests me, at least on along these lines, is the tropes that the film still uses to tell its story are very mythic. There's a kind of irony to the fact that the film incorporates all of this religious iconography and all of this religious symbolism, even in like the framework of its own story, when its presuppositions, when let's say its philosophical presuppositions about really meaning itself are, are kind of antithetical to religion and what religion would postulate. And, and this is, this is, I will say, the great dichotomy of so, so many movies that dominate the zeitgeist right now. There is a huge, huge irony to the fact that even movies that seek to deconstruct the traditional storytelling methodologies, and we've talked quite a bit about deconstructionism in other podcasts. We talked about it recently with the new Batman film, and then we talked about it a while ago with the review of the film Logan. But for all the movies that attempt this, they, they nonetheless realize that they can't actually get away from the basic structure of narrative storytelling. Stories work in a certain way, and you, can, and you can shake that up and turn it over and mix and match all you want. But at the end of the day, a story is a story is a story. There's a plot, there are characters, it begins and it moves toward an ending. This is why, to, to use another example, the, the Last Jedi, I go back to that movie a lot because it was such a cultural lightning rod for this discussion, and it still is, in a lot of ways. It is not a deconstruction of Star Wars. It's that line that Luke gives to Rey very sarcastically at the beginning of the movie. Well, what do you expect me to do? Go out there and face down the whole First Order with myself and a laser sword? 
that's a very deconstructionist attitude, and he makes it sound absurd. Except that narratively, that is exactly what he does at the end of the movie. He goes to his death doing it. The narrative itself refutes the deconstruction. It has its cake and it eats it too. Everything, everywhere, all at once essentially does the same thing. In some respects, the film spends the first half, uh, the first hour and a half, basically asserting, asserting in a thousand different ways that everything is meaningless, that nothing matters. It's all chaos. And if everything just blinked out of existence tomorrow in the grand scheme of things, it's really not going to matter. But the last hour is spent with Evelyn refuting that idea. Now, philosophically, where I take issue with the film is that it never actually corrects the mentality that there is no absolute truth or objective meaning to reality. And this, I think, is what your question is is getting at and how the film uh, portrays things, but then still suggests that you can find meaning. We'll, We'll get into that. If anything, Evelyn basically says to the evil version of Joy, well, maybe you're right. Maybe there is no meaning. But even if there's not, I still choose to find meaning in my relationship with you because you're my daughter and I love you. Now, if you really want to excavate that for a minute, the Christian is going to recoil from that philosophy and say, well, actually, (laughs) even if we didn't exist, there would still be absolute truth. And there would still be meaning to whatever is left in the void because all of that is assigned by Yahweh, whose literal name means that he is the only self-sustaining being in all of existence. In other words, when everything else is not, he is, and that's enough. So there is a very serious and critical movement in where one localizes absolute truth and where one places and finds truth that is going on in the background of this movie. And that's really what we're talking about here. It's, it's a basic assumption, what I'm going to call a presupposition. It's a presupposition that the movie operates on. And this is so critical to understand. It's, it's not that we're, we're just tracking the plot here and saying, okay, this is what's going on, this is what's going on, then this happens, this this happens, then this happens. All of it is happening in the context of this basic assumption that is already sort of made in the film itself, that is very nihilistic. And, and it really says that meaning, the end of the movie, with Evelyn sort of making all things right, really what it's suggesting, because of the presupposition that everything is meaningless, The basic assumption of reality is says that meaning is what you make of it. Well, if there is no meaning, well, then it's whatever I assign meaning to that suddenly has meaning. Now, where I do give the film credit is in its assertion that a universe with meaning is better than one without. And that's what you see at the end, uh, where Evelyn essentially realizes, you know what? It's not the grandest life. But at the end of the day, I got a laundromat and I got people I love, and I'm going to choose to find meaning in that. Even if meaning is something you have to make up for yourself, as she does, and assign it to relationships or whatever, if that's where you locate meaning, the film says, then it is a far better world than one in which nothing matters. So, you know, if nothing matters, everything can just die, and we're trying to avoid that here. And there is such an 
irony here, however unintentional or intentional it may have been, that this is a movie that contains a hugely messianic component. I mean, the whole plot is built around this idea of the one who can save it all. It incorporates all of this deeply mythic, and because of that, C.S. Lewis would argue, meaningful imagery to tell its story. And I think I've mentioned this essay on this podcast before. I, I can't remember, but I want to do it again. The essay Blue Spells and Philanthropies by Lewis is extremely critical to this discussion. So I'm also going to give a shameless plug here. I have a blog. That blog is called Dirty Pretty Things, a title I took from a really brilliant British film director, uh, a film directed by this guy named Stephen Frears. And on that blog, I have an essay titled Metaphor and the Nature of Meaning in Louisian Thought, which traces how C.S. Lewis connects myth and metaphor to meaning in the world. Uh, and how meaning is found in the world. And I am telling you now, I realize this very quickly, most people don't quite get what Lewis is actually saying because his ideas of meaning and metaphor and myth can really, really shift how you think about literalities and influence hermeneutics as we read the Bible in pretty profound ways. So I'm going to encourage anyone who is interested in this particular discussion to check out Lewis's essay uh, and I'm pretty sure I have some footnotes in that article on my blog that can help uh, uh, give you some other reading materials. It is a, a fascinating discussion to have, and I think it gives you a pretty good idea of why so many modern films, like Everything Everywhere All at Once, can be at once very anti-Christian in some ways, but still incorporate mythic imagery left and right. Um, it's, a, it's a weird, weird dichotomy. But there are reasons for it. Now, to your question of, you know, do I think that you can find, you know, a sense of meaning, I guess, in, uh, you know, something as mundane as laundromat? Yeah, yeah, of course. I think a lot of the, the Bible sort of asserts that in, in some respects. I, I hesitate to, to use the word meaning to get technical, technical for just a second. Um, I, I think I'd be much more comfortable calling it something like a sense of purpose in the mundane. Um, actually, I take that back. It's not the mundane. Mundane is also the wrong word for it. It's ordinary. It's ordinary. And that, that maybe is uh, a, a better way to describe um, Evelyn's character arc in this film, is she has to go from seeing her situation as bland and mundane to understanding it as being ordinary in the best sense of the word. Um, it's not the... It might not be... The, the movie star life that she could have um, where she's got it all, but she doesn't have Waymond who, who does say to her, and it is a very good moment in this movie that you brought up that that scene where he says, you know, all things considered and, and all things being what they are, I still would have been just as content to, you know, live a very small existence with you. Um, and that's a pretty powerful moment. And I give the film credit for that. I give the film credit for not whiffing <laughs> in that regard. Where we're going to have to be careful with this particular film is in its, its basic assumption that it never really does correct, that there is no meaning. Or if there is a meaning out there, then you can't know what it is. And you're going to have to, you know, in, in the life or death, day-to-day uh, -day trenches of existence, you're going to have to stake your meaning 
uh, where you find meaning somewhere, uh, even if it is the ordinary and the mundane. So in that respect, it's a very heavily philosophical film, and I'm sure it will you know, generate no, no small amount of debate. It's pretty interesting, that article that you, you read from, was it The Atlantic? I think it was. That's pretty interesting from a guy who, you know, I think he, he says he, he's no longer really ascribes to any sort of faith and he doesn't really have any answers. Well, neither does the movie, but he, he actually says the film does have an answer for it, which is to say, well, if it's not there, you got to make it up. You got to locate it somewhere. It's, it's just an interesting, interesting perspective on it. And this, this, is a, this is a topic where Christians are going to come down on, in a very different place. We're going to land in a very different place than a lot of other, other people. I really do think in terms of apologetics and having apologetic value, man, this is a movie where you'll really be able to, to dig into it and uh, have some conversations. That, that's not going to land where the film lands at all, narratively. It's certainly, if, if nothing else, it's an opportunity to have the discussions. I know you were mentioning C.S. Lewis and you were just talking about the messianic image, imagery in this movie, which also, of course, it's not a spoiler to say that there are very overt references to the Matrix, of course, and uh, Neo being the one and making jumps and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just wondering, you know, in our post-Christian culture, it's very interesting to me that these religious tropes are used, especially messianic ones, even for people who aren't religious, they can recognize that religious symbolism in a story. Why do you think that the directors and writers, they wrote this film, went to kind of use that familiar trope to draw people in to a film that is trying to make some meaning that's really not anything that they can they can have there. And I would say, after watching some series recently that are just kind of what I would call existentialism, classical atheist existentialism for the masses, I, was, I recently finished watching the Apple TV series Severance, and it kind of comes down to this very humanistic message that, you know, all we have really is our relationships, our family, people. And so how does it you know, benefit the film to start out with these very religious tropes and pretty much a non-religious culture at this point. Yeah, this is a, a really fascinating discussion to have. Um, part of the the warp and woof of the way that stories are told, just period, deal in what's called archetypes, which really brings you into the, the realms of discussion of, of mythology. The simplest way I, I can articulate this without getting, I mean, you really could do a, you know, a whole separate discussion, multiple episodes just on this alone. And, and in a lot of ways, this has informed so much of my own research and, and writing, especially when I was in seminary. I did, I spent so much time on these topics. There are certain universal constants in narrative storytelling through those archetypes that it doesn't matter what culture you're in. It doesn't matter what time period you're standing in you can look at it and see and recognize those universal constants like a messianic figure. It doesn't matter if you're in the West. It doesn't matter if you're in the East. It doesn't matter if it was a thousand years ago. It doesn't matter if it's now. You can look at that and recognize that as a messianic archetype. Nine times out of 10, your basic college freshman course on quote-unquote comparative mythologies will help you recognize that. It will get you to that point. What it will not help you do is start to see the intimate details and the differences between cultures, between what sets each messianic figure 
apart and different and makes them unique unto themselves. That's where the rubber meets the road when you get into those nitty gritty details. Um, see, C.S. Lewis was a student of mythology back before he was ever a Christian. He loved mythology. He loved reading like Norse myths, especially. It was almost, I think you could you could probably get away with calling it something like an obsession. And he would have these long conversations with Tolkien and a guy named Dyson, where he would sort of challenge their 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 beliefs while they were Christians and sort of debate them on this topic of Christianity. And what his big struggle, Lewis's big struggle to some degree, was in thinking that if he became a Christian, he would have to sort of let go of all of these stories that he used to love. It was almost, it was almost like he was afraid of a very kind of fundamentalist version of Christianity, where if he became a Christian, he would never be able to so much as read about you know these Norse characters again. And what Tolkien uh, helped him to see is that you're to become a Christian is not to let go of myth. It is to step deeper into it and to suddenly accept it as not just not just a a story or not just a narrative, but to suddenly accept it as a true thing that you were suddenly a part of. And that is what led Lewis to dub Christianity. He calls it the capital T true myth, capital T, capital M, true myth. It's the mythic story that actually plays out in human history. What sets it apart from like Norse myths or Greek myths it's it's not that Olympus is some weird mythic location slash mountain. It's the story of Christianity happens in, in history, in context, in place and time. You can go stand in Jerusalem. You can go stand where Christ stood. You can go look at where he was crucified. You can do all of these things. You can go walk around the Middle East. Uh, in that respect, he called it a, a true myth. And what really fascinated him later on in his life and in a lot of his writings, I mean, one of the, the last great works we did or he did that we read is, is that is very popular is Till We Have Faces, which is literally subtitled A Myth Retold. Those kinds of things pull you further up and further in, he would say. Uh, so, so when you, you, you read these stories, even ones that are like pretty anti-Christian, like everything everywhere all at once, there's something, there really is something to the fact that they can't get away from these mythic tropes in their narrative. And it's like you said, there's so many films that do this. You know, the, the Matrix is, is very mythic in how it's skinned. And why that is important, uh, Lewis will credit that with being one of the things that led him to faith. He will say that he did not realize it, but as a kid reading all of those mythic stories, it quote unquote baptized his imagination. That's exactly how he says it. He was primed to receive Christ when he came along because he was so steeped in myth and archetypes and mythological stories. And a controversial figure today who is still kind of talking about this stuff, very controversial figure, but someone worth listening to in this respect is Jordan Peterson, uh, the, the Canadian professor. He, he really sees the significance of this stuff and the importance of it and how it, it really can influence your day-to-day -day life and how you see yourself in the world more so than really anything else. This was, to, to sort of bolster the significance of this stuff, this is a hill that Lewis would die on. And in my own research and writing, this is a hill that I would die on. I will not die on a hill of science. I'm sorry, I won't. I've been to the Creation Museum. I know that Ken Ham and those guys really love 
to you know debate the ice age. I'm not going to die on the hill of the ice age if, if it's a real thing or when it happened. I just don't know. Part of me doesn't care. I will die on the hill of myth. Something that is abstract seems abstracted from reality at first glance can actually have much more profound implications about how you and I live our day-to-day lives and how we think about uh, reality than any science textbook out there. And I, I really can't overstate the importance of this. Um, Lewis, like I said, will, will credit it with being a, a huge, playing a huge role in his conversion experience. I did a thesis at Moody um, uh, that was really a, a, lot, a lot along these lines. It, it's the role of the imagination and the conversion experience. And I really do believe and have come to believe that until the imagination is captured by the Holy Spirit, one does not convert. One will not convert. There has to be a component in which the the imagination. I don't use that like you know a, a child, you know, like a kid. The imagination, like in a, a very, right? Exactly. I don't. I don't mean it in that sense, but in in a very real sense. Until the imagination is, I will say, wooed to Christ, one one will not convert. And, and I think that's a, that's a really important discussion to have. That a lot of Christians just don't. We don't even have categories for, so we don't. Full with it. Most Christians, when they hear the word myth, they go like the fairy tales, which not quite. They're two different things, actually. But, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Um, they, they run from that because they think, oh, it's, it's, it's fate. And I'm going, well, no, not necessarily. <laughs> or it's it can pagan. Actually, you know, it's pagan because Greek. There you go. And, yeah. And, yeah, exactly. And, I mean, people, people, especially some of my friends will, will lose the fall out of their chairs when they'll say, well, well, do you believe that Genesis is mythic? And I go, yeah. And they go, well, do you take it literally? And I go, yeah. And they're going, but you can't hold, do both at the same time. Going, well, you, you can actually. <laughs> that was that was Lewis's great conviction. A lot of I will hear a lot of people say, well, Lewis was not a biblicist. In other words, he didn't read the Bible literally. And I go, well, then you must not be reading Lewis because C.S. Lewis would argue that he is more of a literal biblicist than you or I, which blows the minds. Uh, you know, I, I came through Dallas Theological Seminary. I mean, that would, that would make some of my professors just, you know, pull out the hair that they no longer have. You know, they would go, what, or how, how can Lewis possibly say that? I mean, look at some of the stuff he said about myth. I'm going, right, that's exactly how he can make that assertion, is because of how he understands metaphor and myth and meaning to play uh, in the world. Lewis will really go as far as to say um, that myth and metaphor can actually bring you into something that is more real than real, <laughs> which is wild. It's such a wild claim. And this is what I meant earlier, because I don't, I don't want to turn this podcast into this discussion, but that's what I meant earlier when I said, if, if you're not careful, um, Lewis's ideas on this really will change your hermeneutic of scripture. Um, and, and you, you just, you, you, it's, it's really an important discussion to have. Um, but I, I think when you get into that territory, you start to understand how a lot of these, even anti-Christian stories that we have being told to us today, still can't get away from imagery that we kind of look at and go, ah, it's actually kind of quite <laughs> biblical in some respects. Um, it's, and it's, it really is fascinating to me, at least. I do think there is kind of a universal language a little bit with regard to certain things in terms of, you know, cultural touch points in terms of film and television, you know, that's this discussion on imagination is probably for a different podcast, but I would say without fail, every time that 
this podcast covers a book that's fiction or a television series or a movie, we've had many people with degrees in cultural apologetics in particular come and be on this podcast to talk about these films because we have a classic work. It's been oh more than a decade since we published it, talking about television as the new literature. People can look that up on our website it's written by Robert Velarde. And the reason why we keep covering these particular things is not to be a film or television re- review um, site, but to talk about imagination, because that is the, in other words, people without you maybe particularly meaning to use that trope, or they are particularly using it, but don't realize how a Christian could respond to it by using a messianic trope, is that there's so much there in terms of imagination, not as we said in the SpongeBob sense or as the childhood sense, but in terms of think using those kinds of things that C.S. Lewis himself did very well in his Narnia series to be able to reach a culture that is very much closed to any kind of discussion about particularly Christian themes. I'm not saying spirituality. Because there is a lot of quote-unquote spirituality going through some of these, not necessarily Christian spirituality, going through these these particular things. And even when they're funny, even in the scene, I was thinking of the scene where there's the metaverse where it's just like there's no humans, there's just like rocks and the camp. You know, a canyon, which is the typical, you know, existential angst of looking out into some abyss and saying there's no meaning, no God, what is there? You know, we're just the atoms of our evolutionary selves that that even in that they were thinking about, well, what would be important? Would it matter that you existed or that I existed or what would happen there? It was a conversation she's having one rock to another with her daughter. And so I would say that that's why we cover these things, because no matter what, it seems to me that when we release this particular podcast on our YouTube, our Bible Answer Brand YouTube channel, you know, someone will get on there. It's like, Hollywood is evil. Why are you covering this? That's what, that's funny, it, because this, this stuff really does get at the heart of sort of why we talk about the things that we're talking about. And I will point out, I mean, I, I know people are like, you're a C.S. Lewis junkie. Yeah, a little bit. And I understand the man was flawed and the man himself understood that he was flawed. And, and But I will point out there is a reason that when you look at the names of 20th century Christian figures, one of them stands head and shoulders above the others. And I don't care if you're Catholic. I don't care if you're Orthodox. I don't care if you're Protestant. Everybody loves C.S. Lewis. Everybody. There's a reason for that. And there's something to pay attention to in that. Because you're not, I'm telling you right now, in the 21st century, you have yet to find a figure who comes even remotely close to doing for the faith what that man did. You're not going to find it. And the fact that his interests were really in this territory tells you something. And I think the man was brilliant at being able to read where the culture was going to go and trying to head it off. He's the last of what I call the pre-moderns. I mean, that's what made him such a and it's not just him, it's Lewis. I mean, you, you want to really talk about somebody who can you know, break the system. Look at Charles Williams. Oh my gosh. I mean, I spent a ton of time doing research on, on Williams's works and, and the way he viewed the world. And I mean, that stuff is just out there, but it's brilliant. It's brilliant, brilliant stuff. And these men were thoroughly Christian. Uh, and that is, that's something worth paying attention to. But you're absolutely right. It gets at the heart of what we do. 
we can think about what is the power of a truly Christian worldview. And I would say that when we talk about Christian worldview, I'm not talking about, of course, that's also a discussion for another time, particular films that are what I would say are more on the propaganda sense, where they start with, okay, we're going to show this film about the power of prayer. Not that a film about the power of prayer couldn't be important, but what I'm saying is it starts with this kind of heavy-handed theme and then tries to build something around it, as opposed to world building that flows out of Christian worldview. I mean, I'm specifically thinking about Tolkien. I would say so many thoroughly atheist people have unwittingly have been drawn into and see their favorite, favorite world. And, and, and I would posit that one of the most powerful things in Lord of the Rings that I see is without, you know, a omnipotent God per se, you know, in the story is that in one of the appendices of Lord of the Rings, it talks kind of about the idea of, of a divine sovereignty in a sense. Like, in other words, would this have happened if that, that particular time, you know, centuries ago, Gandalf went to the Bree Inn where he met the father of such and so, you know, dwarf and whatever. I mean, I'm not a super Tolkien nerd, but what I'm saying was that was really powerful to me. And I read that in appendices of his work, Lord of the Rings. So I just think those kinds of things are something that shows you the power of the arts and the power of a Christian worldview to stand the test of time. I mean, we're talking about decades and decades and decades after. Yeah. Yeah. I tell, I tell my friends all the time. I actually just said this to a guy and he gave me the funniest look. I said, listen, do you like fantasy? Do you like modern fantasy? Do you like modern science fiction? I said, you think the Christians and a Texan, that would be Robert E. Howard. I said, do you think the Christians and a Texan for modern fantasy? And I'm not exaggerating at all. You're absolutely right. And I would say also one of the questions that we always have to answer whether we're talking about Squid Game or we're talking about this particular article, I mean, this particular term film, for example, is, okay, it's rated R. So how should Christians approach this particular film? Is it worth seeing? Now it is, there are some, you know, more than one F-bomb, which is part of its R rating. And there's some other reasons why it's R rated, even though there is zero nudity and zero sex scenes in it. So how should Christians, should they even see this film at all? Yeah, it's a, it's a weird film. Uh, it's not going to work for everybody. It it very much struck me as an art house <laughs> film in a lot of ways in its execution. And I I don't think I'll ever bother watching it again. Once was enough for me. Should you even bother watching it? I you know, I honestly think it's pretty missable. Just unless you're just really interested in these kinds of ideas, or you're just a sci-fi action movie genre junkie who wants to see something different. Is it what is it worth seeing? Maybe once if you fit those categories. Otherwise, I I think it's. It's pretty intentionally weird in its execution. I know we talked about this earlier. It's going to amass a, a cult following. It's going to be a cult film for sure. And it's sort of by nature designed to be that way. It's, it's, it's original in its execution of the subject matter. I'll give it that. So if you're in the mood to see something different, this will be the, uh, the film for you. But I know you, you and I talked before, before I even, I had even seen it. You, you, you mentioned something interesting. I think you probably have a pretty good, a different, we'll have a different perspective on this for me. And I think a pretty good perspective to have. You said your your eighteen year old was going to see it, um, so it's rated R. He can see it, but you were like, there were just, I don't. I, there are parts of it I don't know, <laughs> so I, I don't know. I'll, I'll ask you the question. My husband and I talked about this. There are two scenes in particular that 
I found really objectionable. And those are the main reasons. Now, everything else, uh, without giving spoilers away, and I had to say that to, you know, he's going with a friend and I had to tell that person's parent, okay, here's why, and I've seen the film, this is why it's rated R. And so those were the really the objectionable things that I didn't know if he would have been exposed to that. I don't, I don't know. But it wasn't like nudity. So I think he would have appreciated, for, for me anyway, and also he's 18, so he can make his own decisions, although I could tell him you should or shouldn't see a movie, which he has asked me about for sure. But And he doesn't see everything that's rated R. But I would say I agree with you. It's the kind of film, and he really enjoyed it, as did my um, oldest son, who's 25. But I think they're the kind of, you know, they are sci-fi nerd type folks anyway. So I think if you fall into that particular category or you're a film buff nerd, I agree, it's kind of got an art house feel to it. So if you fall into that category, I think you're really going to like it. Like you like The Matrix and you like sci-fi and superhero movies. I think for the person who there are a lot of Christians out there that don't like pop culture at all. If you fall into that category, oh, for sure, this is going to be an offensive film to you. Right. This is this is not going to be for you. I would be fascinated to, to for a person just to get the like the feedback of someone who is not a movie junkie or who doesn't really care about like the genre stuff. If they don't somebody who just isn't familiar with like, oh, it's a multiverse. You know what I mean? Someone who's just never really been exposed to that or doesn't really care much for it. I'd love to hear their take on something like this. Yeah, I don't know. I think they might be very offended because. In one sense, when we talked about the spirituality of it, and very much, it's weird, right? It juxtaposes this messianic figure of Evelyn, along with this daughter who's having kind of a crisis of identity. There is this kind of a, the typical, I would say right now, queer plot line. You know, the family's rejecting this queer person, but, you know, they're trying to struggle with their identity, but they're, you know, afraid of what their parents are going to think type of thing. And in it, it's like, uh, without giving too much away, that there's this dual nature to one of the characters who ends up being kind of like a bad guy, too. And then the big bad thing in this is this giant, like, kind of, um, not like a black hole, but the thing that this ba- this character has created that turns out to be an everything bagel, which is kind of funny, you know? So they say, oh, it's a bagel. It's an everything bagel. It has everything on it. You know, poppy season stuff. And it, and that's, such a, that, that's such an American cultural thing. I don't know if there's anything bagels everywhere, but everyone laughed. Now, I would say also that uh, one caveat I would make to all of this is that um, I'm an Asian American. I think I saw this film in California, the entire theater. It was before it went released wide. So I was in Northern California. The entire film theater was sold out. My son and daughter-in-law went in cold. They did not know what this film was about. My son really loved it and would see it again, my oldest son. And so, so I'm in Silicon Valley watching it with a bunch of nerds that are Asian. And But there was all different ages. I mean, the couple sitting next to me looked like they were in their 60s. So it was kind of, and that could be the Michelle Yeoh fan base coming out. There was a sense in which people... I, first of all, they liked the context. One of my son's coworkers in Silicon Valley said she loved the context of just she could relate to it as a Chinese American where her parents were, I think, immigrants, where she could really relate to it. And I, th- I think it was very relatable for Asian people, plus to see that the three main characters and the quote unquote bad guy was not, OK, one of these tropes of the bad Asian guy, but it was this you know, Jamie Lee Curtis doing quite a 
IRS agent. And I think that there was a sense in the theater of enjoying seeing people on the screen that look like them in this context. So I would say for that, if you're okay with some R rating, again, there are two profane scenes in it that are not very long that aren't sexual, but are offensive, but there's no nudity in it all at all. And you're any bit interested in sci-fi, even the smidge, it's at least worth one showing. Although I'd say unless you have, don't have that nerd background or the film background. If you're a film junkie, you would understand some of the references. So I kind of know it's a really odd film and yet it's gotten so much critical acclaim and audiences love it. So it's kind of a weird film to even place, which is why I think it's going to be a cult classic. Right. So the, the, what, what's, <laughs> what's funny to me, and I, I did have a moment in the theater watching this where I was sitting there. This is just how my brain works. And I go, okay, I would love to have been there when somebody was pitching this film to Michelle Yeoh. You know what I mean? Just been like, all right. So is she reading the script? Is somebody explaining to her, okay, then this is going to happen. And here's what's happening here. And she's just going, mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Or was she really into it? Was she really, really into the story and, and going, you know, this this is going to be awesome? <laughs> Just, I don't know. Could you imagine? <laughs> it's such a weird film. She has her gray hair. Her hair is not colored, which she normally colors her hair. Right. That's the other thing that's so wild about this. It's not the role you see her in. Her gray hair is in it. She's, I'm sure there's some makeup on her, but she's not glamorous at all in it. And she's just like this mom and, and you can feel the angst of her life and in, and, and her midlife crisis without getting into it. Like, you know, just there, there's a crisis, it's a crisis point as a parent and in her marriage. And I actually think with this sci-fi trapping, it's, it is appealing to so many different people because it's also saying, and I agree with you, the movie pitch, like, okay, we're going to have this middle-aged mom close to 60 with gray hair. She's not going to be glamorous. She's going to Jamie Lee Curtis, or we're going to have this person, you know, a very unglam. Everything about this is unglam. We're going to have a Sammy pack involved. I mean. Yeah, yeah. There were, there were parts I thought, how did this movie get made? Well, finally, on another note, I have one fun rapid fire question for Cole. And we ask these questions of our authors so that our listeners can get to know our authors a little bit better. So Cole, which pop culture metaverse would you rather live in? Star Trek, Marvel Universe, this film? Oh, Star Trek. Easily. Easily. (laughs) Everything else is so dour. Star Trek... There's a, there's at least, well, this movie, it's all that you don't choose, right? So I don't know. That one kind of, I feel like it would come back to bite me. Star Trek, easily. So long as I don't end up in like the Terran Empire, I'm good. I think this movie would be hard to choose because some of the multiverses, she's not even in there for five seconds. Right. right. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Well, thanks, Cole, for being a guest on the Postmodern Realities Podcast. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to episode 283 of the Postmodern Realities podcast. Today, we have been discussing the film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Today's guest was Cole Burgett, and he has written an online exclusive film review for the Christian Research Journal. And you can read his web exclusive review at our website, equip.org, if you are a subscriber to our journal. 